0: You've met With a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Suduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate.
1: And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the site.
0: And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. We took a bit of a somewhat involuntary two-week break before this show, I think for two reasons, really, right? For... Number one, Hurricane Ida is its name, or was its name, I think. Yep, that's, that's it exactly. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and the second reason is that, Aaron, you were at PAX and were quite busy there.
2: Yes, that's right. I had the occasion to travel and see my family before that. And then this past weekend was PAX West, which we were fortunate enough to give two presentations at. So there was a lot of prep work going into that. Uh, We take it very seriously and put a lot of time into what we want to share with the amazing gamers there. Uh, And I'll talk more about it with, uh, with the side quest that I want to do this week later on. But the the feedback was great. The experience was great. Um, it was really nice to get back to an in-person convention after everything that's been happening. Uh, but yeah, it required a little bit of a hiatus to focus on that.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad that we came together to record this episode because as you know, dear listeners out there, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. There are no advertisements. You won't run into a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. And if you wish to contribute, you can go to patreon.com/slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Today's main story is a bit of a special one. We've been pondering this, I think, since we started recording this show. Um, it, we wanted to title it Silent Souls. Now I've never heard of such a game, Aaron. <laughs> what is that? Ah, uh, but you could have heard of
2: it, Stefan. And that's that's the premise of this. Yeah, It's funny. I think it was one of our very first ideas, mm, like when we were yeah. brainstorming things we could do on a weekly basis. Uh, and like any good idea for thinking about video game storytelling, it came to me from a meme that I saw online. <laughs> I actually don't know if you guys would call this a meme. It was at least a Photoshop. So somewhere in between let's say, artistic license and a meme. But if any of you are familiar with that iconic opening shot um, from Silent Hill 2, where we find our protagonist, James Sunderland, at a rest stop, (laughs) it's an image of that rest stop, and sitting outside is Sigurd of Katerina from... The Dark Souls series, uh, or at least a Katarina Knight. Uh, it's it's just someone in the armor, so you can't really tell who it is. But it was kind of a, a hauntingly harmonic image, um, blending these two things from very different games and very different worlds. So it raised the question for me, especially in this age of kind of hybrid games that we're starting to see now things like, uh, at least for me, most notably Hyrule Warriors and the age of calamity. Like, could you actually mash up these two series, Silent Hill and Dark Souls in a way where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? Or would that, uh, in some way do violence to the essence of the two different series and how they tell stories? And it seems
0: intuitively very attractive to me. I must admit straight up front, I've never played Dark Souls. I know of its existence. I know its aesthetics. <laughs> I know its narrative and so on. I've, I've played a lot of Bloodborne, but not Dark Souls. Yet, I, intuitively, it just makes sense to me because both games seem to be imbued with a kind of somber tone. So from, its, from just the perspective of like a very effective part of the atmosphere, it seems to be a very excellent fit.
1: That's where I start with it is uh because I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a meme, Aaron. I would call it like because meme meme to me has such a a, a biting irony to it or something, like mm. some kind of post-irony horrible comedy. <laughs> um it, it just feels more like a uh, like a soothing image that makes sense. I don't know mm. what we would call that. It's shared like a meme, I guess, but um what I like about it is uh to echo what Stefan is saying is that um you know when you're when you're listening to music or you're looking at a piece of art and something about it just clashes and you kind of think oh I don't I don't like this this uh, doesn't sound right or it doesn't look right or if you're watching a movie the tone is all off or something like that but that that photo of the Katarina Knight sitting at the rest stop it's uh, there's no clash when you look at it it does seem that the tones of the two, um, properties kind of meld together in a way that you look at it and your brain says, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's something deeply interesting and attractive
2: about that. Uh, and I think for me, why I was excited to chat about this topic with you guys is, uh, well, while we've never done anything exactly like this on the publication, it's very much of a piece with the way that we try to understand the stories of video games, namely by juxtaposing these two series and asking ourselves, well, would they fit together or not? I think those kinds of comparative exercises can be a really great way of better understanding the essence of each series, right? Because you go through a game and you play it and you can get a feel for it and appreciate it. But I think it's really oftentimes not until you compare and contrast it with other games, especially those that do have a similar tone, like you guys are saying, right? Like Silent Hill and Dark Souls have apparently similar tones, that then, by doing those comparisons, you can dig into really what makes each series special, and and whether those special kinds of attributes can complement each other really well.
0: Right? Yeah, Dark Souls is certainly a series that has somewhat of a of an easily recognizable, identifiable uh, essence. I would assume, if we want to stick with that with the term essence, because uh, it founded this uh, somewhat genre like term of the souls-like, right? So it brought something, it must have brought something unique to the table that then has been copied and redone and altered in several instances. And we're trying to understand first now what that thing is. What is this, what makes a souls-like work, what makes Dark Souls work, right?
2: Exactly that. Yeah, and um, it's fitting. Dan and I actually did a panel um, at a PAX West Uh, A couple years ago at this point, I guess, Dan, Uh, that was all about, yeah. yeah, it was all about the oeuvre of Hidetaka Miyazaki, the creator of Dark Souls, right? Because you're right, Stefan, I think anyone listening to this podcast, if you have a passing familiarity with games, even if you haven't played Dark Souls, you're familiar with this term. Souls-like, right? This this term for describing a genre where games bear some passing relationship in one way or another to Dark Souls, but I think especially when you unpack um, the different games of Miyazaki and the different entries in the Dark Souls series and Bloodborne and even Sekiro after that, you can get... Uh, a really interesting and pretty nuanced view at the different elements of these games and how they're tying together to create a a really cohesive and interesting whole that other games then elaborate on or or challenge in different ways, right? So, So maybe just thinking about those attributes is a good place to start right uh and and even or perhaps especially you stefan right given that you haven't played the game maybe just the uh, talking about the reputation that precedes it would be an interesting way of digging into this too Uh, but when you guys think of dark souls and miyazaki's work uh, what are some of the attributes that are meaningful to you or jump out
0: well maybe without having played the game i can say that the the souls like games on dark souls especially is famous for its difficulty it, that it, of being incredibly punishing yet very rewarding if you put the time and effort into it that's what i associate with dark souls without even having played a single minute of it i i think i, I think
2: difficulty is the thing that comes to most people's minds right and and one of the things in difficulty that a lot of dark souls players find meaningful is it's not just a hard game for the sake of being hard, right? It ties very nicely into the themes and stories that it's trying to convey. One comparison that's, often very rightly made is between Dark Souls and something like the myth of Sisyphus, right? This idea of having to assert the value of one's existence in the face of absurdity and existential failure, right? Um, and so not just not just difficulty where it's, it's a high barrier to entry for the sake of being a challenge, but something where the entire world and tone um, reflects that difficulty in meaningful ways.
1: I think also the the aesthetics of the world are what a lot of people think about. And by that, I mean a few things. One, um, the worlds of all three of the games uh, feel at once very lived in, but also abandoned and kind of um, like crumpled up in a sense where this world has, has, has had its time and you've come after that. And picking up the pieces or trying to make meaning in a world that's already kind of died is really interesting. Um, And further from that, too, they do a really interesting thing. And this is I'll I'll talk more about this with Silent Hill. The Dark Souls games do a very interesting thing with space in the sense that Dark Souls 1 and 3 in particular have a sense that um, there's this connectivity throughout the world where everything kind of it bleeds into the next but 2 does something really interesting where it i think consciously is saying that is something that dark souls 1 is very known for but if you try to put the world of dark souls 2 the world of drang lake together you can't it it doesn't make sense physically it's like an mc escher painting and so this idea that not only are you in a world that no longer is living but it's also in this kind of state of decay where there's no rhyme or reason to the physicality Mm. of
0: it.
2: Yeah. And I I think, I think that idea of a state of decay and the world being abandoned is a Really compelling lens through which to think about how you navigate the Dark Souls world, because you're right. If you're just thinking about it from the perspective of a player trying to navigate these worlds, these games are really well known for you know intricately interrelated worlds where all of the paths feed back upon one another, and you unlock shortcuts through levels um, by you know making progress and opening various doors and things like that. Uh, but the the sense in which you know, a door might have been left locked or a path might have been created or led to a state of decay simply because the world has been abandoned over a long period of time is a really interesting way. I think of folding in that um, those two different aspects of atmosphere in terms of the society and also your experience of navigating the world. That's a great point. I actually I had never thought about the like m c Escher nature of dark Souls too, but like <laughs> you're totally right, um, especially given uh, that whole side quest about the map maker who's (laughs) literally driven insane trying to do exactly that namely map the world
0: yeah yeah yeah. no sense of it i think that picking up on the sisyphus uh metaphor it seems to me that dark souls also has this iconic mechanic of uh going out there against uh very like incredibly bad odds and then failing and then you know trying to go always step by step and leveling up very slowly so you're slowly overcoming what initially seems insurmountable
2: yeah but in a way that's also like um very different than, let's say, a really challenging JRPG, right? Because you can imagine the story of a video game where you have to fail and try many times, but you're able to beef up your party and ultimately triumph over the big bad. And it's really like a moment of victory. I think what goes back exactly as you say, Stefan, to the Sisyphean nature of of Dark Souls and and other works of Miyazaki is this idea that you fail many times, you have to retry many times, you build up your character, but then when you finally have that moment of defeating the boss, the question is often raised thematically, like what did you really accomplish by doing that? Of course, you as the player have succeeded in overcoming this boss and that's meaningful, uh, but there's oftentimes this undercurrent of questioning the meaning of that victory, uh, especially when you get to the ending of the games, which will oftentimes have some of the most challenging bosses and basically always feed back into whatever cycle uh, you began the game with rather than achieving anything final uh, or triumphant.
0: Yeah, questioning the meaning is, I think, also a really interesting point because in uh, just drawing from Bloodborne with the assumption that it is similar in Dark Souls, um this the narrative is often told through either like short bits of dialogue or in item descriptions and it's particularly opaque so there's this vivid community of people that try to piece things together just just to piece together what is actually going on there <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, and it's definitely worth shouting that out in terms of things that Dark Souls is known for, right? It's it's almost so obvious that it's easy to overlook it now, but telling story through item descriptions, um, I think the modern usage of the term lore in relation to video game stories was maybe invented because of Dark Souls. Um, <laughs> and the degree to which it's opaque it definitely does, I think, affect the sense of the player and avatar feeling lost in this world, feeling as though they're in the ruins of something that came before them, right? And also creates this interesting relationship between story and history in the world, right? Because there's the story of your avatar, the the chosen undead in the first game, right? Going through and, and trying to... Um, bring about another age of fire or darkness as you end up as you end up choosing across the course of the game but then also there's all of this other uh you could call it backstory i guess right that gives you context about the world but is not required to understand in order to go through that story of the events of the actual game and so you're in this interesting liminal space where the overall history and nature of the fiction very much informs what the player is doing but also your understanding it is largely optional to to bringing about the events of the game which you don't get in, in many other contexts or modes of storytelling i think
0: yeah and many of these aspects seem to be already quite consistent with what we find in silent hill if i'm not mistaken right
2: yeah, so let's talk about this, and, and I'll shout it out because I don't know if Dan is going to toot his own horn here, but Dan is like the Silent Hill buff that I know. Um, a few years ago, he did an entire article series within his series of determining the the canon of video game stories, just looking at Silent Hill numbers one through four. So I would, I would love if you could take us on a nightmarish journey through the essence of that series, Dan. What, what first comes to your mind when you're thinking about these games?
1: There's, well, <laughs> there's a lot. But um, <laughs> I think in the context of Dark Souls, when you look at the Silent Hill series at 10,000 feet, particularly the first four, which I think a lot of fans consider to be the the core of the series. Um, they are, they are a little um, disparate in their, in their theming, because I think that each of those four games deals with something very specific um, and different from one another. But I would say that largely speaking, if you look at those four games as a whole, what Silent Hill is capital A about is trauma and coming to terms with it. So the first game um, is all about, you know, Harry Mason and his daughter and this idea of losing a daughter and what that would mean, but also um, exploring what uh, child abuse looks like in a very nuanced and kind of terrifying way. Um, Silent Hill 2, I'll, I'll stick to mainly because it's kind of the anomaly with the first four games where I have this theory that Silent Hill was meant to be an anthology series and they kind of went back to the first story after Silent Hill 2 um, because Silent Hill 2 is still dealing with trauma but specifically through the lens of guilt and I think that the reason that 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 image of a Katarina Knight sitting at the the opening rest stop of Silent Hill 2 is so consonant with both games is because I also think that In keeping with the idea that the Dark Souls worlds are abandoned and they're dead and there's nothing, there's no meaning to be gained from them unless you ascribe some to it. I think that Silent Hill, the place and Silent Hill, the game, particularly in the second installment is very much about um, a memory that would like to be dead, but can't because it keeps coming back. This idea of this guilt that James carries is something that he is always going to be struggling with. And I think that that kind of that somber tone of always having to come back to deep, dark guilt is very uh, in line with the death of the entire world in a Dark Souls game and having to deal with the trauma of history being over by the time you enter it.
2: Now, Stefan are, are the silent hill games ones that you've played yeah, slipping yeah definitely. away from dark souls
0: definitely I have
2: yeah and given your focus on on madness especially in your PhD work I, I imagine you might have some interesting thoughts on how they operate
0: I, I would totally agree with Dan I think trauma and guilt seem to be the key themes of at least of the games that I've played as well I I'd have for some weird reason, I have the most vivid memories of Silent Hill Downpour, which is one that you specifically, Dan, did <laughs> not mention as being part of <laughs> the, let's say, Silent Hill canon. And it's, I think, considered to be one of the weaker entries in the series.
1: Uh, yes, but also kind of a, a return to form, a lot of people say, too. It is. So. I
0: think especially after Silent Hill The Room, which I think was the fourth one, which is set in one one room, basically, and everything's very mindscapey and very confusing. Uh, Silent Hill downpour comes back to this idea of, yeah, pretty much conventionally exploring uh, Silent Hill. And I do think that uh, one aspect that does definitely connect uh, these two games, Dark Souls and Silent Hills, so far that I can see is um, the the way in which the exploration of the world is at the same time an exploration of one's own state of mind. Um, at least, I'm not no. sure whether this is entirely true of Dark Souls. I know of Bloodborne. it it probably is. Uh, but that seems to be one reason why these why it just seems so organic that these worlds would interlink. Why it would not be strange for you if you played Silent Hill and suddenly you turn up in a in a Dark Souls level or the other way around. You play Dark Souls and you end up in something that looks like a Silent Hill ghost town area.
1: <laughs> I would I would agree with that, and I would say that uh the thing about Silent Hill is that it kind of insidiously um, tricks you into being introspective by thinking about the character, you know, the the character that you're playing as, whether that's Harry Mason or James Sunderland, or, um, you know, Harry uh, Henry Townsend in uh, the fourth one. But the the kind of insidious thing is that you're thinking about that character's journey, and then thoughts start to creep in the back of your mind of, oh, I wonder if if I can relate to this or if I've already related to it and what that mm. means about myself. And meanwhile in dark souls, because you're playing as a created avatar that doesn't speak. Um, I think that that, that layer of reflection through a character's story is removed. And so you're kind of sat there with these feelings a lot more, um, uh, <laughs> a lot more in your face as you're trying to kind of come to terms with them.
0: And I must say that a Silent Souls game is to me a game, in my mind at least, that has a fully fleshed out protagonist. That's at least how I initially imagined it. Because of this strong emphasis of trauma and guilt in the Silent Hill games, I think that kind of, maybe it's because I haven't played Dark Souls, it overpowers the idea of, you know, character Mm -hmm. creation in in my own imagination. I think you're right. And I mean, I
2: think even... Given that the avatars in Dark Souls and Bloodborne are very minimalistic, um, that strikes me, even in the conversation we've had so far, as less belonging to the series' essence, then the presence of a very heavily characterized avatar is belonging to the essence of Silent Hill, right? Like, exactly as you guys are talking about, the whole notion of what a Silent Hill game is, I think, falls apart if you don't have the idea of an avatar who has done things or is wrestling with trauma that is then manifested through the world, right? The thing that I wonder... um, is how compatible the way in which that guilt or trauma is manifested in the world would be between a Dark Souls game and a Silent Hill game, right? Because we talked about how, you know, even with kind of the Escher logic of Dark Souls 2, right? The, the worlds are very tightly interconnected and are kind of like these beautiful labyrinth puzzle boxes in terms of how they're put together, right? Um, especially as I think of Silent Hill 2, in contrast, I feel like a lot of the world, um, to your point about mindscapes, Stefan, has this kind of nightmare logic to it, right? Where you walk into a room and suddenly there's a giant pit that you fall down and like like nothing fits together because it's not supposed to, right? It becomes largely just like purely symbolic of whatever's going on in in the case of Silent Hill 2 James Sunderland's mind right and so I wonder like would those two aesthetics of like very different modes of navigation between video game worlds representing very different things work if you were to try to mash them together
0: I think they might I think they might if you combine the let's say nightmarish disorientation of a Silent Hill with the idea of bonfires so that you would have kind of these these points distributed throughout a let's say silent hill setting i imagine this to be you know to be contemporary to be like modern day setting i don't know why <laughs> that's at least what pops into my <laughs> mind where you have something similar to to bonfires and those places are places where you can rest where maybe even the change of the world because that's a crucial thing of silent hill that we haven't mentioned so far that the world changes with the ringing of a siren into an, I would say, even more nightmarish version of this ghost town. The other world. The other world, yes. And that these bonfires are places where you're safe from that uh, sh- from that shift into the other world. It's,
1: it's funny because, uh, you know, the more that we... And maybe you could do this with any two properties. I just feel like there's a lot of natural connective tissue between these two. Um, speaking of Silent Hill 4, a big part of Silent Hill 4 is that the way that Henry leaves the room is through these holes that take him to different places in silent hill, which is very similar to what bonfires inevitably become like these points where you can travel to different spaces. And I, the, the more that we're talking about this, the more I wonder, and I'm going to do a sign of the cross on myself in reverence for uh, what could have been, um, silent hills, Mm. uh, (laughs) PT, what PT would have become. I, I wonder if, um, I know it's maybe tongue-in-cheek to just add the S on the end of it, but the idea that as one avatar, you are traversing through different people's mindscapes in Silent Hill. Uh, Because Silent Hill 2 basically alludes to that. Every character that you're meeting is going through their own personal version of the town. And I think that while we're talking about this, I almost wonder if that wasn't the plan. Because the more that we talk, the more I think that just makes... One for an incredible Silent Hill story, but then also for a really interesting way to kind of bridge the gap to a Dark Souls like story in the sense that you're seeing these worlds that in a Dark Souls setting would have been, you know, long dead from these past cycles. But instead of that, it's just hopping to different people's trauma
2: Well, and it's interesting because you actually, you do have models for something like that in Miyazaki's oeuvre, right? Like the memories that you engage with in Dark Souls 2 are kind of like that, being transported into the the experiences of others and what they remember, and even you, you could think of the nightmares and Bloodborne in a similar way, right? So being able to navigate into those different psychologies and mindscapes could be really cool. Or if you're being really sinister about it, I'd, uh, players would probably hate this, but I could imagine an interesting kind of nightmare navigation where if you have a bonfire mechanic, like maybe sometimes if you respawn, it, it like it puts you to a different bonfire, like a different area of the mindscape or like respawning to a bonfire has a chance of like moving you between the other world and regular Silent Hill. I feel like there's a a lot of opportunities to have
1: scary navigation in that way. Can I just interject with how that would make one of my favorite um, uh, nonsensical Silent Hill terms into an even scarier idea? The there was a hole here, it's gone now (laughs) would be great if you have this this way that you can travel or you're safe and then you walk into a room that you think is a safe room only to see that message and you think oh no <laughs> oh my
2: god forget well, about it i would turn off my console at that point man <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i think first of all i think that the silent hills title i was just simply waiting and expecting and maybe they would have done this is to flip the s and turn it into silent hill 5 i thought that oh. that that might have been the plan it never materialized we will never know uh, because Konami just tried to kill it with fire. But uh, yep. but I do think that one thing I'm absolutely certain in in, si- in our fictional game, Silent Hills, um, from software, uh, sorry, what did I say? Silent Souls, not Silent Hills, sorry. Silent Souls, uh, <laughs> From Software would have to design the combat. Because one thing that was always... Silent Hill, I think it's fine that it has a clunky, heavy, and imprecise combat because you're not playing someone who is uh, well-versed at fighting. And I think it would be cool to maintain the idea of being kind of like an everyday person, not a trained soldier or whatever. But it it could have more... Precision be more on point and have this high stakes uh feeling of of a Dark Souls game. I think in the combat department, it, it would definitely be a glorious way to merge these two these two franchises. I
1: I love the idea because the monsters in Silent Hill are so deliberately designed for different things that the main character is either the main character or the person whose trauma you're exploring is uh, dealing with. I think it would be really interesting, especially after games like Sekiro, where they made these precision um, attempts at combat for different situations. It would be really interesting to say, okay, well, you're just a normal 35-year-old person. How are you going to fight this insane-looking monster? Well, maybe every monster, there's different tactics that a normal Mm -hmm. person might might use, right? Uh, That would be an interesting marriage of what those original Silent Hill games did with how uh, FromSoft's combat is usually, I think, thought of in development. I will say one thing. I
2: I, I think I agree with you guys that from software's combat and the storytelling it brings about would ultimately be a a better fit and something that could work with integrating Silent Hill. But I I do feel like, especially thinking back to Silent Hill 2, because that's the one I have the most experience with, the clunkiness of controlling James and dealing with combat, it, it, it didn't just give me a sense of like, helplessness and James being an ordinary guy, it also gave me a lot of anxiety (laughs) in in navigating through the world because I didn't feel like I had good tools or that I was well-equipped to handle anything I was going to come across, but also not in the same way you feel helpless in a game like, um, let's say, Amnesia, where you simply don't have any tools, right? I think it's that magic of the expectation of combat and knowing that you can do it, but simultaneously knowing that you can't do it well right and so to to see from software potentially spin out a mode of combat storytelling that just further reinforces that i think could be really cool
0: yeah i think if one studio could pull that balance off then it would be
2: from software i find myself wondering you know we we talked about the nature of cycles in each game right because in, in Dark Souls and Bloodborne you have these macroscopic cycles of everything starting over in one way or another and no progress being made between you're finishing the game and immediately being thrown into New Game Plus right and in Silent Hills you have more of the cyclical and inescapable nature of, of trauma as a psychology right but I wonder, how do you guys think that a hybrid game would be able to adjudicate that? Because I feel like a big part of Silent Hill is oftentimes like endings that have some some finality to them, right? And and depend on the actions that the player took within the game, right? So do you think they'd be able to merge those two different kinds of cyclical natures
1: in a way that was satisfying? I'll say yes, but I also want to Shout out that I would love to see a Dark Souls like dog ending. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it god! It was you. It was you the whole time. Um, I think that again. I'm going to say I, I feel that that may have been what Kojima and Del Toro were thinking with Silent Hills because the the idea of being so. I think, like you said, Aaron, in the in the Dark Souls games, there is this macroscopic idea that. The cycle just continues and it's it's the it's the entire thing done over and over and over again and i think the way to merge that with psychological horror in a silent hill game would be like in that pt demo walking through the same hallway infinite times like the the idea i think could be really you mentioned anxiety earlier Imagine if instead of having the entire story be a cycle, there were just these moments, which I think is, is true of a lot of trauma victims where you, you're constantly scared that you will be trapped in a moment like that and you can't Mm. leave it. Mm. I'm thinking also of, um, there is a, uh, a video game adaptation of Harlan Ellison's I have no mouth and I must scream. Um, that Gives a real. I won't even get into it because of how dark and haunting it is. But this, it, it managed to capture this feeling of constantly being worried that every door you open will just be the the loop again. And I think that that would be so interesting for. And I think that's probably what they were going for.
2: You know what this reminds me of? It's it's a left field comparison and it's sadly bringing in a third IP, but you know, like the, the iconic Lost Woods of Ocarina of Time, right. Where there's, there's a way to proceed, but also there's a risk and weird, like repetitious structure to the area that you will get spat out at the beginning again, if you don't do everything just right. Right. And I think that balance between like being stuck in a world where there are so many ways to repeat and and seeming escapes that are not real versus like one right way to navigate it. I, I could see that being a really interesting and as you say, anxiety and trauma-inducing balance of the kind of intricate navigation that happens in Dark Souls with the psychological terror that you get in Silent Hill.
0: I think that might be a really good idea for one location in this uh, Silent Souls game, maybe not the entire game, I d- oh, no, <laughs> then we would all lose our minds. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it, Because I think that, I mean, the world probably doesn't need more time loop games, but uh, Sin- uh, Silent <laughs> Hill does have an idea of infinite repetition, right? There's this coal mine under the city that's infinitely on fire, basically. And uh, the the nightmares that occur in Silent Hills, I think we talk, spoke about that in a previous episode already, are kind of recurrent in that it's always different people that end up in the place. And so I think, yeah. especially like one area, one location in which you have this kind of lost woods vibe, I think that would be that would be pretty cool and perfectly in keeping with what makes both both games great. I love the idea too because there is a joke
1: in in the Dark Souls community where and I, this is going to happen in Elden Ring, I know it, it's the, <clears throat> we're going to be waiting for the moment where we go to, you know, we go to turn a corner and there's a monster behind it that we attack only to then be attacked by a different monster hiding behind mm. a different corner that comes yep. out. <laughs> and I think the the kind of play conditioning that that does for us is that it it makes us expect that to the point where it in there's a moment in Bloodborne that, uh, I think presupposes that you think that, and so it attacks you again on top of it. And I love the idea that a silent Hill game maybe does something like that once. And then there's another time where it's so similar, you think it's going to happen again, but it doesn't so that you're on edge the entire game thinking, is that just going to happen again? Where's the next one? And it doesn't happen. That would be (laughs) very in keeping with silent Hill as well.
2: Uh I think we're designing the like ideal anxiety machine here and I don't know how I feel about it.
0: <laughs> this is going to be like a really creepy game because Dark Souls from software games in general have a very creepy vibe to them often and if you combine that with this explicit horror of of Silent Hills I think like this is going to be this is going to be like uh uh rated 18 definitely. <laughs> 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 let me ask you guys this
2: then so we, we talked about the nature of lore and dark souls and discovering the history of this world through items and things like that i wonder how do you think that would tie into this kind of silent souls um hybrid right because again i feel like one of the really iconic things about silent hill is the degree to which so much of the world is psychological right either a a mindscape or pure symbolism representing like different things to do with the the trauma victim or the psychology of the avatar and so if you have a series whose aesthetic and environment is so grounded in that kind of pure psychology do you think there would still be a way to tie in this kind of like Objective history of the world that you could discover, or would there be some other way to translate that into a hybridization?
0: I think there would be. I think uh, if I were now in a pitch meeting for this game, uh, sitting at you know at the table with Konami and with From Software, uh, then I'd, I'd probably say that Silent Hills does. Ha- uh, sorry, Silent Hill does have a lot of lore going on. Um, it's not particularly foregrounded in in many of the games, but it does happen. And I think it's been long enough since a game came out, a Silent Hill game came out to explore that kind of what happened under the city in that mine, what happened to the mm. people that lived there, that I do think you could use that kind of um, obscure lore to sprinkle it all over this game that is essentially about trauma, but but l- like understanding that trauma and living through it and eventually maybe overcoming it, depending on the ending, um, will also be influenced by the fact to which degree you are open to understand what happened to the place itself. I love that idea. And I think
1: that my wish for, because I always am so taken aback by horror titles, whether it's a video game, story, a book, movie, whatever, where they go too much into the explanation of the scary thing. And I think that um, there's already I, I I would I would stake the claim that Miyazaki um, and the FromSoft development team are big fans of Silent Hill because I think of things in Silent Hill 2 in particular. There's a moment I'm thinking of where um, so obviously we all know him as Pyramid Head, but his actual name is That Red Pyramid Thing um, and he shows up. very terrifying and later in the game you can almost miss it there's which is i think akin to dark souls you can miss this there's a painting on a wall um in one of the buildings that you go into towards the end and it describes oh that's what the old executioners in silent hill looked like they wore these pyramid things on their head instead of black bags and they had these big knives that they would bring down on people's necks and It's never explained whether that's real or if that's something that James is projecting, or did he read this in a book and that's why it looks like that for him? You know, there's it's never explained. And so I think I agree with you, Stefan. I would love to see those things, but I would love it to be left up to interpretation at the end of maybe that happened, maybe it didn't. It doesn't really matter because it's that's how this person is interpreting it.
2: It might be too complicated, but uh, going back to your suggestion of something like Silent Hills, Dan, with uh, more than one character's psychology being projected onto the world and exploring those different um, psychological worlds, it, it could also be kind of a fascinating way of exploring such a game uh, to maybe find lore elements um, that represent like the perceptions of other characters on this world. Uh, so maybe getting like pieces of what one character thinks or sees in the world as you're navigating the psychology of someone else and and kind of having to piece together the tapestry of all these different characters perspectives in that way.
1: Well, the, I'm, I'm, this is a silent Hill hit parade. The best line from silent Hill three is they look like monsters to you. Exactly. It's just a a joke. (laughs) It's just a joke. Is it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs)
0: it wasn't just a joke wow okay so i think (laughs) i think we're sketching out a pretty good a pretty good idea of what silent souls could look like uh it's bound to release uh in september 2023 (laughs) 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 next fall i
2: have to tell you guys in in all seriousness um this is a great poster child for why I love having these conversations because transparently, while I was so excited to have this podcast topic, I came into this being very, very skeptical about the compatibility of these two different series, but just picking it apart and exploring the, the two objects with you guys, I've gotten, as you can tell, much more excited about the possibility of, of what they could lend to each other in this kind of hybridization. So that's, that's what these talks are all about.
0: Yeah. And if uh, Konami, uh... From software, you know, want to reach out. We're open to just get some financing. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Hire us. (laughs) In the meantime, uh, shall we move ahead and do some side questing?
2: Well, I I wanted to ask just one final question that might be interesting both for us to consider now and, and our listeners, if they have any thoughts. I mean, now that we've done this with with Dark Souls and Silent Hill. Can you guys think of any other uh, game properties or series that might be interesting to consider in the same light of whether or not they'd work as a hybrid?
0: From the top of my head, it's a bit difficult. I think I would certainly have many that would come to mind, but spontaneously I struggle a bit.
1: I have this idea that you could take uh, the Final Fantasy characters from Square Enix and put them in a game with Disney characters. Oh, Damn. that would Shut be up, awesome. Shut <laughs> <laughs> up, And
2: that's when Aaron sent Dan back in time to undo everything he'd ever done. (laughs) It didn't work. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: I'll say this, and this is maybe a a boring or um, already cliched idea, given how, uh, how inviting it is to think this way, given certain elements of the series. But when we're already on a horror jag, thinking of something like silent hill or a similar horror style game in combination with the legend of zelda like if you think about all the scariest moments uh, in the legend of zelda series um i'm thinking especially of a few moments in twilight princess and then think of like a whole game spun out based on that I mean, that would be very very unsettling uh, but potentially very interesting as well i'm scared of majora's mask already <laughs> yeah, I, I would, well, I was going to say, I wouldn't say that's a horror game. That's probably disingenuous since I've literally talked about it at panels on horror games. Um, but but uh, all, all the better for thinking about different kinds of horror, right? That, that, that beast is scary, but in a way all its own. Um, yeah, but listeners, if, if you have any other ideas for games that you'd like to, to consider in conversation with one another in these ways, or if you think there's a, a great spinoff or series combo that no one's thought of yet, I uh, would love to hear from you in that regard.
0: Then we wrap it up with that and uh, head over to our side quests. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we go into anything that happened in video game culture, anecdotes from video games we've played, and many other things. In this instance, I've brought a small article titled Don't Not Adopting Permanent Work-From-Home Policy. This is written by Brendan Sinclair and published on gamesindustry.biz. So it's obviously about home office and the pandemic has kind of necessitated that many companies switch to a at least optional home office policy. And for Don't Not, for the developing studio behind Life is Strange, Tell Me Why, Vampire, and I think the somewhat underestimated Remember Me, they, the pandemic kind of accelerated a process that they had already started. Because last year in November... Excuse me, last year in October, they had a referendum within their studio where 87% of the employees voted in favor of the so-called FROG policy, which stands for the Fully Remote Organization Program. Now, henceforth, this was introduced, I think, a couple of weeks ago, employees from offices in Paris and Montreal can choose whether they want to work in the office or work from home, quote: Those who work from home will have equipment and furniture provided by the company, and offices will also have shared flex desks for remote employees who need to work out of the office studio uh, out of the studio from time to time. End quote. So this means it's just a very short story that I wanted to bring because often we talk about atrocious. Uh, working conditions in developer studios, and I think this is kind of a neat little uh, story where a studio has been rather forthcoming to um, basically account for the desires of the employees, which means two things that are definitely positive for the studio. One is for the employees, there's obviously more flexibility because they can choose where to work. It also means, though, that they can widen the circle of potential applicants because if you want to apply for those studios, you don't necessarily have to always commute to the actual office. So I think that's a huge plus.
1: I agree that I think um, it's it's the rare nice story of a video game studio doing something like a kind of forward thinking. I think for the people who work there, and uh, I I can only imagine that because I think this happened in a lot of industries. Like I know my own changed this way where. I think it was always going to happen that this was going to be an option, but it really was accelerated this past year and a half. And I think, honestly, what it showed you know, big companies, video gaming companies, I would imagine especially, is that, um, wow, the overhead that we have on this office space is actually pretty incredible. What if we just made <laughs> our people happier and let them do the – it's all computer work anyway. We'll just have them do it from home. I, I'm glad to see that that's happening, I hope. Bigger studios trend that way as well if they haven't already.
2: You said it gives them access to more applicants, Stefan. Um, and I think the other side of that is also, uh, you know, as, as we're entering this kind of era where remote work has become so normalized, I think a lot of uh, companies in a lot of different industries are seeing pressure to do it so that people don't leave. Right. Because if you don't offer your employees this kind of flexibility, and there are other companies that do, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people have seen that work that is at least partly remote can give them a lot more flexibility and just quality of life. Right. And so, the ability for them to become more mobile and have access to more jobs, precisely by virtue of companies, you know, letting them do it remotely, um, I think, puts those remaining companies under a lot of pressure to to accommodate that mode of working, right? Which I think, in the long run, is probably going to be better for everyone.
0: I think so too, especially when you have the option to choose. Because I know that there are some people who struggle working at home, and I can totally understand that. I love working from home, but I know there are people who, especially when you have, you know, you have family, you've got children and you need to have your own space. Not everyone has the money to have like an an own office at home. So I I think it is it is really wonderful if you can if you can choose. And um I would never want this to become um something where you are in the situation that you have to work from home. But I think even if you imagine like just like you said, Dan, with the gigantic overhead that comes with it if you have a studio of like 100 employees and out of those like 60, say we would like to work from home, then you've got, you can even like consider moving to a smaller office. You have like lower electricity bills and so on, like lower heating bills. Renting out the other floors. Exactly. I think this is, this is totally a viable option and an efficient option that accommodates the, the necessities of the 21st century. Really? I think so. And my, my final note on it will be,
1: um, I, I, I would hope that uh, this would also lead to fewer um, crunch situations that we've been seeing in the past few years where the maybe the office um, uh, attitude or culture is maybe leading to people burning themselves out. And if they can just say, well, I'm already home and it's six o'clock. That's the end of the day for me. Maybe they won't feel so pressured.
0: Yeah, it can go either way, I think. It can go that way that people say, okay, I'm working at home and then the, this, the different uh, roles and the different spaces in life mingle and they do more over time. That's at least what is always tempting. Um, but I do think if you keep an eye on that and if you maybe also are, are so forthcoming as to give people a little bit of help in organizing um, their their working space at home so as to separate these two, then I think I think this might be super helpful especially in preventing such a thing like the culture of um that is basically frowned upon if you leave before the boss leaves for example
2: it can definitely cut both ways though i mean i uh having worked in various kinds of remote environments for a few years now like if if you're in this situation where you can always have your work with you and and the the boss leaves very rarely or or keeps long hours or other people do on your team and they're sending messages outside of normal work hours, it can become hard to draw and enforce those boundaries. So I, I can only imagine that's something that people will be struggling with and, and figuring out the right etiquette for in the years to come as well.
0: Well, then I would say, let's move ahead. We've got one more uh, side quest um, and that is your journey, Aaron, to PAX.
2: Yeah, my journey to the mystical land of Seattle. Um, Gosh, it was so nice to be back. It was definitely a weird and different sense in Seattle um, with everything that's going on with the pandemic and everyone wearing masks. But I think... First and foremost, I definitely want to shout out um, not only the people who attended Pax, but perhaps even more so the enforcers and staff and everyone who ran Pax. Uh, I mean, you guys both know how much it takes for people to run and organize uh, and manage a large conference or convention in the first place, uh, and to do so with all of the added uh, pandemic um, restrictions was really something. Um, They had a policy in place basically saying either you need um, proof of vaccination and you get a wristband for that, or proof of a negative COVID test within the past um, several days, I think two or three days. Uh, So so they basically had to manage everyone uh, getting all of that proof and wearing masks. And all the presenters had to wear masks. So there were a a number of different logistics that you never would have expected for something like this. it was funny because I, I was looking online and keeping up with everything during the uh, convention. And there seemed to be a lot of um, doubt from people who didn't end up going as to whether it was worth it or how valuable it really was. But uh, I'll tell you, in terms of the people I saw while I was there, it was still very much the feeling of irregular packs, uh, which was very gratifying to see. Everyone was so excited, the, the presenters and everyone who were exhibiting um, their wares and games were all really excited and engaged and happy to be there. Uh, and there was the same kind of energy in the air. Uh, maybe fewer people overall, maybe a little bit more subdued. But the thing that I and I know Dan have always loved about PAX is, is the sense that it's just this community that's like nowhere else in the world in terms of gamers who come together just because they love the medium and want to celebrate it and want to explore it in any number of different ways, uh, including this time around a couple of panels that I gave, um, typically bring along people beyond myself. Uh, and the plan was to bring along Dan and Layla, but they ultimately weren't able to make it. So I was a bit of a one-man show. Uh, and definitely want to thank everyone who came, uh, given that, because I know a one-man show uh, has, has less dimensionality to it than multiple voices, especially when it comes to something like video game analysis. Um, but yeah, on Friday, I gave a panel on horror storytelling in video games. Which is tremendously fun. I mean, listeners to the podcast, if you've you've listened to us in the past, you know how large horror looms, uh, even on on this particular episode, in terms of how we think about video game storytelling. Um, And we've had the opportunity to give a number of panels oriented in that way at various uh, iterations of PAX in the past. And and what's fun is we always talk about different games or different themes within horror storytelling. This time it was all about the three main titles in the Amnesia series, the Dark Descent and A Machine for Pigs, and the most recent one, Rebirth, uh, which was a lot of fun to dig into and revisit those games. And I think one of the the coolest things that I didn't expect... um, And just goes to show, I guess, how intellectually curious uh, a lot of people at PAX are, was I expected, especially given um, the focus on a single series of horror video games, that all or at least most of the people who attended the panel would be big fans of Amnesia. But maybe only half of the people there had played the series. Uh, so I think a lot just showed up out of interest in horror or wanting to learn about the series for the first time, uh, and, and I got a lot of comments from them afterwards saying that it made them want to play the series or, you know, just think about the themes in horror storytelling differently, which was great. Uh, and then on Sunday, I, I got to be the representative and acolyte for the series that Dan founded uh, on the publication about four years ago, all about building a canon of video game storytelling, uh, and uh, this marks, uh, I think, the last uh, installment of PAX that we hadn't given such a presentation at before, or had we done PAX West before, Dan? Do you do you remember? For the Canon? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did Chrono Trigger there. Oh, that's right. We did Chrono Trigger there, yes. But we have given it, at. Uh, the, um, for those who don't know, the PAX or, or Penny Arcade Expo, it started in Seattle, but now it's also in Texas and Boston uh, and Melbourne over on the other side of the world. Uh, And we've had the good fortune of not only presenting at all of them, but also now um, having presented the canon panel specifically at all of them, which is a lot of fun. Um, Listeners, if you're not familiar with the series, we'll leave a link in the show notes, encourage you to check it out. Uh, But basically at these presentations, what we do is first walk through the notion of what a canon of works in any field of study is and why it might be useful to have such a canon for video game storytelling. And then we actually have the audience vote on which of four or five games they would like to discuss as a candidate for admission into the canon. And so then it just becomes a live conversation between us as the presenters and the audience giving their views on the good, the bad, and the ugly about this game. Uh, This time around, we talked about Final Fantasy IX, which was a great conversation. Um, It was meaningful to me because I'd actually just published uh, a new article looking at uh, the literary and theatrical elements of the game. I don't know if people had had seen that or not at the panel, um, but again, one of the cool things, similar to to what I was saying about the horror panel, was. Uh, even people who had not played Final Fantasy IX before came up to the microphone and wanted to talk about it, and were able to connect the themes that we were discussing with other relevant games in the medium, uh, and and how they're brought to bear on the game that we're considering. So you know, they they talked about how the theatricality of IX compares to something like the theatricality of Final Fantasy VI, for example, right? Or how the ensemble cast of something like uh, Final Fantasy IX compares, fittingly enough, to a Chrono trigger
1: right which which, as dan said we talked about at pax west in the past right i'll also i'll also say that because i watched that uh panel live and one of the things that i liked was um not uh it wasn't just one person a few people said uh the great question which was well are we considering this for the canon of video games or just the like the greater final fantasy canon like does this deserve to be remembered as one of the great final fantasies which i thought was a great point to bring up that um, I think shy of maybe Kingdom Hearts or Resident Evil, I don't think I've talked about before. So it was cool to see them organically think about that. There was a lot of good discussion about the context and level at which you're
2: considering a canon. And and I was fortunate enough to catch up afterwards with a lot of um, people who came to the panel and wanted to keep the conversation going. And we talked about things like, you know, what's one's personal video game canon and how can you use the perspective of thinking in canons just to better... Um, categorize your own, um, gaming library and how it's led you to think about games in a certain way. Uh, and then of course you can think about it in the, in the macrocosm of all video game storytelling or indeed specific series or specific genres. I
1: think we talked about, um, dark souls and souls like games in that way as well. Which by the way, uh, listeners is the big secret of my series is that it is my personal, it's, it's me like putting candidates in for my personal canon and then also making the decision they should be in the capital C canon. So it's cool to see that people have a similar inclination to do that. That's right. Um,
2: look, I loved it. I, I can't say enough good things about PAX. Uh, it means so much to me that they always put on the convention and that they did it in these crazy times and found a way to do it um, that I would say was really responsible and thoughtful and safe for everyone there. Uh, and also, you know, it, it just, you can't say enough how far gaming has come and how gamers truly are like literate and thirsty for talking about these topics and are so happy to get an outlet to think about something like the literary value of games and their relationship to one another and how they've built an entire medium of literature, frankly, that can be compared and and is engaged oftentimes with novels and plays and and films and everything else you could think of as canonical literature. It was really funny, and I I won't dwell on this too long here because, frankly, it's not worth it, but (laughs) I found out shortly after giving that canon panel that literally the day before we got together to talk about the canon of video game storytelling in this incredibly robust and satisfying way Bloomberg published this op-ed uh, by a professor of economics who claimed that video games are just not the kind of thing that can contribute to culture or a literary canon. Uh, so I I ended up writing a little bit of a reply to him. So I'll just point listeners to that rather than ranting about it now. Uh, rather, I'll just say it's... It's so transparently the case. Uh, if you ever sit down and play a game or talk with anyone who's played a game, how literary and how valuable they are, uh, and how thirsty gamers, like any engaged readers or, you know, fans of culture, are for having conversations about these works of art uh, with other people who love them. And so to be able to do that, I mean, the, those conversations have always been the most meaningful thing to me about With a Terrible Fate. I was grateful to have them uh, at PAX West this time
0: around. Oh, I miss video game conventions. Now that you just spoke about it that way, I just realized... It's nothing like a man. long. Yep. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, goodness. <clears throat> Too long.
2: Yeah. But it's good to be getting back to it. When we all have long gray beards, maybe...
0: We won't have to wear masks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe we can sit together on a panel then.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. I will say also as, as personal highlights, uh, maybe less material to the study of video game storytelling. Uh, the, the one, um, kind of gift to myself that I picked up while I was there was a plushie that fan gamer is offering now of Artorius, uh, of dark souls fame fittingly for this podcast episode. Uh, so that was great. Uh, is was my, my one little little treat for myself, uh, which is great because I also have a corgi at home. Uh, and so I can do a lot of Artorias and Sif, uh, man and beast uh, playing around <laughs> now that I have Artorias. Uh, and I also wore two pins. I'm always a fan of pin fashion when I'm uh, giving presentations. One was my pin of Majora's Mask for obvious reasons. And one was a pin of Grimoire Vice from Near, uh, which I thought was very fitting for all of the literary stuff we're, we're talking about since he's actually a book with a, a consciousness manifested, uh, and each of those pins was recognized exactly once over the course of the convention, so that was really meaningful to me too.
0: Ah, oh, amazing. Then I would say, shall we wrap it up for today for this week? Let's do it. Yeah. Dear listeners, thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoy the show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com/with a Terrible Fate. And if you like this show, then feel free to leave some reviews at Apple Podcasts. You can find all of our written content on withaterriblefate.com and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. Enjoy the week and talk soon.